There comes a point when the right to vote requires a fight to vote. MSNBC Films presents Battleground Georgia, a story that explores the ugly history of voter suppression and how Georgia is leading the charge against it. Something has to change. The old South is being replaced by the new South. Battleground Georgia, part of the Turning Point documentary series from executive producer Trevor Noah. Sunday, May 19th at 9 p.m. Eastern on MSNBC. Tonight on The Readout. In the city where the dreamer laid down and shed his blood, you have the unmitigated gall to beat your brother, chase him down and beat him some more. This is a family that lost their son and their brother through an act of violence at the hands and the feet of people who had been charged with keeping them safe. With the brother of George Floyd and the mother of Breonna Taylor in attendance, Tyree Nichols, yet another young black life snuffed out by the brutality of police, is mourned in Memphis. And later, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar joins me as Republicans continue their revenge tour, plotting to deny her a seat on the Foreign Affairs Committee. But we begin tonight on the first day of Black History Month, while it's still legal, presumably even in Florida. In Memphis, Tyree Nichols was eulogized today by Reverend Al Sharpton, Vice President Kamala Harris, Ben Crump, and Tyree's family in an emotional and powerful ceremony in the city that was once the site of the final speech of the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. on the night before his assassination in April 1968. Looking at the balcony where Martin Luther King shed his blood for city workers, for black city workers, to be able to work in the police department, work in sanitation. And the reason why Mr. and Mrs. Wells, what happened to Tyree is so personal to me, is that five black men that wouldn't have had a job in the police department, in the city that Dr. King lost his life, not far away from that balcony, you beat a brother to death. Despite the profound symbolism, most Americans actually have little historical memory of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s final speech, except for its closing line. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know the night that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man. My eyes have seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. But before King dropped those famous lines, he did something that you may not have heard much about. He called out Southern governors' attacks on freedom of speech and their injunctions against civil rights marches and protests, saying, 
If I lived in China or even Russia or any totalitarian country, maybe I could understand some of these illegal injunctions. Maybe I could understand the denial of certain basic First Amendment privileges because they hadn't committed themselves to that over there. But somewhere I read of the freedom of assembly. Somewhere I read of the freedom of speech. Somewhere I read of the freedom of the press. Somewhere I read that the greatness of America is the right to protest for right. So just as I say, we aren't going to let any dogs or water hoses turn us around. We aren't going to let any injunction turn us around. We are going on. Dr. King also used the speech to call for economic justice, calling on black Memphians to boycott Coca-Cola and other companies who refuse to hire black workers. He said, we've come here, we've come by here to ask you to make the first item on your agenda fair treatment, where God's children are concerned. Now, if you are not prepared to do that, we have an agenda that we must follow. And our agenda calls for withdrawing economic support from you. And he stood up for the more than a thousand sanitation workers who were laboring in unsafe conditions for substandard wages in Memphis. And in many cases, living in poverty, often needing welfare benefits to survive even with a city job while being belittled and mistreated by their white colleagues and supervisors at work. The sanitation workers were on strike for that reason, a strike and protest that had brought Dr. King to Memphis in the first place. That is the Dr. King that the right doesn't want you to know. The one America's right wing authorities, including the FBI, labeled a communist and an agitator who threatened both the social and the economic order of white supremacy. America has precious little historic memory. When schools teach the Civil War, for instance, they often fail to mention that the first of 11 Southern states to secede from the Confederates to form the Confederate States of America, South Carolina, openly declared that the cause of its separation was the failure of the free Northern states to honor the fugitive slave laws and return runaway slaves to their masters. South Carolina's secession declaration is a nearly 30-paragraph tirade of complaints against the northern states undermining of slavery, including this, quote, we affirm that these ends for which this government was instituted have been defeated and the government itself has been made destructive of them by the action of the non-slaveholding states. Those states have assumed the right of deciding upon the property of our domestic institutions and have denied the rights of property established in 15 of the states and recognized by the Constitution. They have denounced as sinful the institution of slavery. They have permitted open establishment among them of societies whose avowed object is to disturb the peace and to eloign the property of the citizens of other states. They have encouraged and assisted thousands of our slaves to leave their homes. And those who remain have been incited by emissaries, books, and pictures to servile insurrection. The other states that followed suit and seceded, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, Texas, Virginia, Arkansas, Tennessee, and North Carolina, did so for the same cause, to defend the peculiar institution deemed necessary to the South's economic survival. Mississippi probably made it the plainest, stating right at the top of its secession order that our position is thoroughly identified with the institution of slavery, the greatest material interest of the world. Its labor supplies the product which constitutes by far the largest and most important portions of commerce of the earth. 
These products are peculiar to the climate, verging on the tropical regions. And by an imperious law of nature, none but the black race can bear exposure to the tropical sun. These products have become necessities of the world, and a blow at slavery is a blow at commerce and civilization. That blow has long been aimed at the institution and was at the point of reaching its consummation. There was no choice left but to submission to the mandates of abolition or a dissolution of the union. Those principles had been subverted to work out our ruin. Our lack of historical memory is no accident. Within decades of the Civil War, by the 1890s, the Daughters of the Confederacy, comprised of the widows and daughters of Confederate soldiers, went to work shaping the national understanding of the war in the South's favor, erecting monuments to the Southern insurrectionists, funding textbooks that were used throughout the country, not just in the South, that mollified the national understanding of slavery itself, removing it as the cause of the war and softening its edges from a system of human breeding and brutality to one of benign familial relationships and contented labor. So the war on our national memory is not new. It is, in fact, an American tradition. The memory of the slave South, the Civil War, the supposedly universal greatest generation support for World War II, and the memory of Dr. King have all been victims of it. Today, the war on history is being fought across the red states, with Florida and its governor, Ron DeSantis, acting as the tip of the spear, mandating education on the glories of Western civilization and outlawing studies in African-American history, infusing religious doctrine into public school education by stacking school boards and college administrations while purging those institutions of liberal educators and administrators silencing librarians and instructors with the threat of incarceration and banning books that might give students at the K through 12 or even at the collegiate level a glimpse at inconvenient historical facts and diversity. It is an American version of communist China's cultural revolution or the decades of memory purges in the USSR. The American right is trying to impose its Christian nationalist fascistic doctrine on you and your kids whether you want it or not. And they won't be satisfied to just do it in red states. Just look at where they're going with their abortion bans. That is the war we're facing. But we don't have to cede this ground. We can fight for the facts. And the first day of Black History Month seems as good a day as any to start. And joining me now is Dr. Ibram X. Kendi, founding director of the Boston University Center for Anti-Racist Research and author of several books, including How to Be a Young anti-racist. Dr. Kendi, thank you so much for being here. I'm going to put up some of the most banned books in the country, and your book is among them. Um, But what we're seeing right now is a war on knowledge of ourselves. And I wonder what you make of the idea that just knowing the history that I just mentioned is illegal in states like Florida. Well, what I I make of it is is actually something that DeSantis recently stated to explain why he's overhauling uh, Florida's higher education system. He, he's, he's opposing programs that he stated uh, provoke political activism. Uh, he says that's not appropriate in the state of Florida. And, and then he's, of course, supporting programs that seem to me to be provoking political compliance. Uh, programs that seem to be uh, provoking uh, people to uh, attack or despise people who don't look like them 
or even people who do look like them and who are trying to just get home. What do you make of the what I would consider to be the abject cowardice, to be honest, of the college board, which claimed in a statement that their decision to alter their course in African-American studies um, was not made due to political pressure. They said this was a longstanding course that no one had seen and that this decision was made outside of politics. And yet they have taken away any part of the, the, the course material that would be involved in the tests, the AP tests, that involved contemporary topics like Black Lives Matter, affirmative action, queer life, and reparations. Those are now out. Many black writers and scholars, including Kimberly Crenshaw, is out. Roderick Ferguson, who does writes about queer social movements. Ta-Nehisi Coates, the esteemed writer for The Atlantic, who's written about reparations. And Bell Hooks, who writes about race, feminism, and class. This is what— um, it, it, to me, it seems shocking to do that. Kimberly Crenshaw made the point that, you know, African-American history is not just about men. Uh, it's also about black people, queer people, all sorts of people. Um, she's made this point that it was stunning to say that you can't even read about these other people. Your thoughts? I mean, I, I agree with, with with Kimberly Crenshaw. And, and indeed, you, you can't understand uh, black history if you don't understand black feminism. You you can't understand black history if you don't understand queer theory. There are black people who are queer. You you can't understand uh, black history if you don't have a critical understanding of, of, of race. You, 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 you can't understand it. And indeed, that's the purpose. And so I, I think that it was shocking that the college board, which imagines itself is seeking to promote uh, higher learning, seeker to promote critical thinking, would think that we're so stupid <laughs> that 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 they haven't bowed down to political pressure. They've also, I think, uh, been very open, I think, told on themselves a little bit when they added something in that uh, I, I'm not understanding why it's there, which is now students who take this AP history class uh, may take an option to do research studies in black conservatism. So to me, that is a tell, because what they're saying is we don't want you to focus on Black Lives Matter or reparations, but we do like we would like you very much, please, to do studies on black conservatism. That feels like a tell to me. Does it to you? I mean, the, the hypocrisy, the, the, the contradictions are obvious. If, if it was up to me, we would learn about all of the different intellectual traditions within African-American history. And, and, and we wouldn't certainly be eradicating or putting to the side, you know, black feminism, which is among the richest intellectual traditions and, and bringing to the fore black conservatism, which from my standpoint, hasn't actually uh, provided as much intellectual direction, particularly for African-Americans more broadly, you know, as black feminism. But, but, it, but it goes to show that this is not about education. This is about politics, whether you're talking about DeSantis or even the college board. Well, you know, there, there, there is uh, black conservatism that one could read about in history that had an impact. You know, I'm writing a book right now about Medgar Evers. There were uh, African-Americans who were complicit with the idea of segregation um, and participated in the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission, spying uh, on behalf of the Mississippi Sovereignty Commission. But I doubt that those kind of studies would be in the sections on black conservatism, because it does feel to me like the College Board is complying with the idea that the DeSantis's of the world want to make more conservatives, not make students smarter. And I, th I think that's that's the tragedy of this. I mean, you know, the, the, the College Board prides 
its its AP courses uh, on seeking to to you know educate and 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 provoke uh, thinking and critical thinking and, and prepare our students for college and in college when they come to college they're going to read about black feminism they're going to have to learn about black queer theory they're going to have to learn you know about African American history they're going to have to learn about history and if so if, they, if this AP course isn't truly preparing them for understanding Black Lives Matter. I mean, you know, two years ago, three years ago, Black Lives Matter was critical in generating the most, uh, the largest protest series of demonstrations in American history. (laughs) And that shouldn't be part of an AP African-American history, African-American studies course. I mean, it's don't get me started. <laughs> well, they'll they'll learn about it if they go to college in a blue state, because DeSantis, et cetera, are not done. They also want to outlaw this teaching in colleges and control those professors and that reading, um, that reading, those reading lists as well. Uh, Ibram X. Kendi, uh, Dr. Kendi, thank you very much for being here. Up next on The Readout, mourners gather for the Tyree Nichols funeral in Memphis, including Vice President Kamala Harris, who delivered heartfelt, hard-hitting remarks. And Readout continues after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. I see the world showing him love and fighting for his justice. But all I want is my baby brother back. I'm just trying to go home. Don't I deserve to feel safe? Batons, badges, boots, bright lights against my face. What's done in the dark will always come to the light. And the light of day is justice for Tyree. That was Tyree Nichols' family at his funeral today in Memphis. It will be remembered along with the pantheon of civil rights funerals, which are as much about the movement as they are about the individual. These funerals are a public forum for black Americans to collectively grieve and to continue to push for change. It goes back to the 1963 funeral for the four little girls killed in the Birmingham church bombing, where Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. condemned white supremacy and called for substituting courage for caution, as well as his 1965 eulogy for Jimmy Lee Jackson, killed by an Alabama state trooper during a civil rights protest re-emphasized the need to fight against the system that led that police officer to kill him. The Reverend Al Sharpton has now assumed that leadership role, eulogizing George Floyd and others, and now Tyree Nichols today. And Reverend Sharpton delivered a message to the black officers who killed Nichols. 
You didn't get on the police department by yourself. The police chief didn't get there by herself. People had to march and go to jail and some lost their lives to open the doors for you. And how dare you? like that sacrifice was enough for nothing. Joining me now is Reverend Earl Fisher, senior pastor of the Abyssinian Baptist Church in Memphis, and Russell Wigington, president of the National Civil Rights Museum. Uh, and Mr. Wigington, I do want to start with you because that context, I think, is important um, because these funerals are not private affairs. Um, they go into the context of the Jimmy Lee Jacksons and those four little girls. Can you talk about why that is so important for the African-American community and for the civil rights movement? Absolutely. And you show the funeral in Birmingham of the church bombing, and it's 60 years since that in 2023. And we're still having these kinds of conversations, these kinds of um, gut-wrenching moments in our community. And at the National Civil Rights Museum, we try to lift up all of these stories for the world to see to learn from, to guide us, and to provide us a glimpse into our history that is so important for us to understand if we are going to remedy these acts of horror moving forward. Absolutely. And let me play a little bit of Vice President Kamala Harris. Um, and the context for this is we got the program, uh, Reverend Fisher, beforehand, and she was not on it as a speaker. She was as an attendee. But as a pastor will do, uh, my brother, uh, Reverend Sharpton, called her to the podium and, uh, and asked her to speak. And she spoke. She spoke. Here she is. Mothers around the world, when their babies are born— Pray to God when they hold that child that that body and that life will be safe for the rest of his life. And with this, I will say, this violent act was not in pursuit of public safety. Because one must ask, was not it in the interest of keeping the public safe that Tyree Nichols would be with us here today? That is the most powerful black woman in the history of the United States, uh, Reverend Fisher. What did it mean uh, to the community in Memphis that she was there and did that today? Well, thank you, Joy, for having me. And I, I think her presence was powerful. I think her words were provocative and true. And beyond that, I think what people in the city want, especially, you know, activists and organizers and people who have been pushing this agenda forward for the last several years, even before we got to this point, we can appreciate people who endorse these ideas, but now we need people who enforce these mm. ideas. And that means making sure that we have the proper type of infrastructure insofar as not just who's in office and people who are elected, but people who are appointed and people who have the right type of not just skin color, but psychology to make sure that they leverage their authority in ways that make our communities more equitable.
Yeah, the, uh, the, the vice president called for the George Floyd Act to be passed um, and said that, it, that the president will sign it. It just needs to be passed. Uh, and uh, Mr. Wigington, I do want to add that some of the other people who were there it, um, were people who've gone through this pain themselves. Both of them, John, John's sister, Alyssa Finley, was there. Eric Garner's mom, Gwen Carr, who many people have come to know. Breonna Taylor's mom, Tamika Palmer, was also there. Philonis Floyd, George Floyd's brother, was there. What did it mean to have that collection of people who have grieved in this exact same way um, be a part of this? Symbolically, what did that mean? As Reverend Fisher said, it was a powerful moment. It was too many people, quite frankly, that they had to be there. And I was reminded of April 4th and beyond of 1968, where on the balcony at the Lorraine Motel, we lost the most transformative leader of the 20th century and Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King. And our city had to endure that. And we've been living with that legacy for 55 years now. But I have to tell you, because of Pastor Fisher and so many others, the way this community has rallied and come together, we're in the process of healing. But justice must be attained. And this community has the resolve to make sure that that happens. We have grieved for a long time in this city following the, the assassination of Dr. King. And now here we are today, February the 1st, lifting up the legacy of Tyree Nichols and his, his family who has been so brave and so resolute in a peaceful solution and justice for their son. And Reverend Fisher, let's talk about what that justice looks like. You know, every time we have one of these cases, people go, OK, this is it. You know, people will they're never going to let this happen again. And then it happens again and again and again and again. What does justice look like for uh, the folks in Memphis? So it's complicated because it takes a comprehensive approach to it. And I think sometimes we get stuck on the flashpoints. And so we do push in certain areas, but maybe not on all of the proper buttons at the same time. So there are several demands that activists and organizers have made on behalf of the family. Some of what it looks like is stop pretextual traffic stops, mm -hmm. stop predictive policing. And back to my first point, enforce some of the eight can't wait. You claim to be endorsing and you claim to be on the side of it. So it's a lot of things in terms of comprehensive approaches. And I'll say this lastly, I've seen too often, Sister Joy, people put more pressure on activists and organizers to come up with the solutions than we do mm -hmm. the people who have been elected to office, appointed to office and employed to do it. If they did their job, then we wouldn't have to keep protesting. If they did their job, we wouldn't have to come up with so many creative ways to engage the public and raise their consciousness. So, again, comprehensive solutions to this. And we know it's not mm -hmm. overnight, but we have to keep pushing as we have been pushing. So every time we do that, we're doing that to honor Tyree and the life of everybody else who was represented there today. And not just because you're a pastor, you're going to get an amen. Uh, Reverend Earl Fisher, thank you very much. Russell Wigington, thank you very much. Still ahead, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar joins me to talk about Republican attempts to boot her from the Foreign Affairs Committee as their revenge and retribution agenda shifts into high gear. We'll be right back. 
Stay up to date on the biggest issues of the day with the MSNBC Daily Newsletter. Each morning, you'll get analysis by experts you trust, video highlights from your favorite shows. 2024 is now truly the most important election in the history of our country. Previews of our podcasts and documentaries, plus written perspectives from the newsmakers themselves, all sent directly to your inbox each morning. Get the best of MSNBC all in one place. Sign up for MSNBC Daily at msnbc.com. Hi, I'm Jonathan Capehart, and I'm excited to share some great news. Both The Saturday Show and The Sunday Show are available as a podcast. Every weekend, I look forward to bringing you the most important political news and the newsmakers who are creating policies that affect your life. For me, it's all about the conversation. That's when news is revealed and understanding begins. Search for Saturdays and Sundays with Jonathan Capehart and follow. House Republicans in their razor-thin new majority are expected to vote tomorrow to remove Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar from the Foreign Affairs Committee. If successful, it would make her the third Democratic House member to lose a committee assignment. Congressman Adam Schiff and Eric Swalwell were blocked from House Intelligence last week. Republicans claim as their reason some specific remarks that Congresswoman Omar made in the past in criticizing Israel, remarks she has apologized for. But the real reason is simply vengeance by Kevin McCarthy against Democrats on behalf of the extreme wing of his party, to which McCarthy is entirely beholden. Revenge against Democrats for stripping Marjorie Taylor Greene and Paul Gosar of their committee assignments back in 2021. But let's be clear. The reason why a majority in Congress, including some Republicans, voted to remove Gosar and Greene was for threatening violence against Democrats. Not only did Green spread dangerous and racist QAnon conspiracies, but on social media, she endorsed executing top Democrats while also suggesting that the Sandy Hook and Parkland school shootings were staged. Gosar was expelled months later for posting an anime video depicting him killing Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and attacking President Biden. Neither has publicly apologized, nor need they, apparently, because they, and not the supposed speaker, are now in charge. And joining me now is Democratic Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of Minnesota. And I did remark when you came in, you are surprisingly nonplussed and, um, by what is happening. But what do you make of this venge, revenge tactic by Kevin McCarthy? Yeah, I mean, they've, they've been on a vengeance tour. Um, and, you know, they've been very clear uh, last night when the, the, the rules debate was happening in the Rules Committee, you did this and we're going to do it uh, without context. Uh, it's very blatantly clear when we removed those two uh, from their committees in the last cycle, uh, it was because they threatened violence mm -hmm. against members of Congress. Uh, and it had nothing to do about their work on committees. It had nothing to do about opinions that they uh, might have on, on policy. Uh, and, and what they have done now is deny Eric Swalwell and Adam Schiff their committees because they disagreed in the way in which they let the impeachment against Trump. So this, this is um, 
extracting revenge yeah. uh, for for Trump, uh, their master. Uh, and certainly, I mean, I've been a target for them from the beginning. As you remember, McCarthy himself made the promise before I even got sworn in. Back in 2019, uh, Donald Trump came into my state in 2016 when I was running for the Minnesota House and mm -hmm. said, Somalis are infiltrating our uh, your state and our country. Mm -hmm. You remember um, Marjorie Taylor Greene coming to Congress mm -hmm. in 2019 before she was a member of Congress and saying um, that Muslims should not be in Congress. And oddly, for somebody who believes in the Constitution, didn't actually know mm -hmm. that I had a constitutional right, along with Rashida Tlaib, to get sworn in in whatever I chose, because right. we have freedom of religion in this country. Uh, and um, and so we know what this is, this is about. Uh, this is about saying this particular member of Congress is not allowed to have a voice on the Foreign Affairs Committee. Yeah. This particular member of, um, of Congress is someone that we don't think is uh, appropriate in voicing. And that comes back to the fact that they don't actually think Muslims um, or, you know, refugees or immigrants in this country can appropriately criticize U.S. policy, mm -hmm. can appropriately criticize, um, you know, policies of, of other countries. Uh, and uh, to me, that is against my First Amendment rights. Uh, it is against what our Constitution allows. It's against the principles we all believe as Americans about the, the freedom to, to debate and engage in uh, dissent. Uh, and you have to remember the Foreign Policy, the Foreign Affairs Committee really isn't about um, you know, rubber stamping whatever uh, the foreign policy of whatever administration is. It's about oversight. Mm -hmm. uh, it's about critique. It's about advancing a, a, a better um, policy forward. Uh, and it certainly is about uh, making sure that the values that we say uh, to be true as a country are right. carried out through our, our foreign policy and they don't remain uh, a myth. And these people don't believe in that kind of accountability being necessary when it comes to our country and others. And, and by the way, just for you said you mentioned context. Let me just put up this picture. This is Marjorie Taylor Greene posting on her Facebook this, yeah. right? You also have uh, Rep, uh, it, Boebert, Lauren Boebert, who is right now justifying wanting to have loaded weapons on the floor of the House. Yeah. Um, with those kinds of people who have threatened you, who have threatened your colleagues, who have threatened other Democrats, they want to carry guns on the floor. And yet they're saying you shouldn't be on the Foreign Affairs Committee. What do you make of that? Yeah, I mean, and, and, and I think the most absurd part of, of this whole argument is, is somehow that you, you have to be an objective decision maker. <laughs> That is the most ridiculous litmus test uh, for any member of Congress. Uh, you know, we famously say, vote your district. Right. Uh, so your perspective, the perspective of your constituents, uh, their, their insight, all of that is supposed to be injected into the decision-making process. Right. Uh, and so to, to have that requirement of me and not to make that requirement of anyone else. I mean, if you think about somebody like Marjorie Taylor Greene being on Homeland Security, this is someone who <laughs> believed 9-11 was an was, insight was job, an inside right? Job. Someone yeah. who doesn't even believe uh, in, in 
in allowing Muslims, how is she supposed to carry out the objectives yeah. um, of, like, the Patriot Act? And you have somebody who essentially has threatened you, threatened other members of the squad, yeah. now potentially carrying guns yeah. on I mean, the and sadly, That's can you terrifying. imagine someone like her overseeing oversight <laughs> on the Patriot Act and the way in which to, she feels about Muslims? It's insane. we're going to have to imagine. Because yes. it's going to happen. Congresswoman Ilhan Omar, thank you. Thank you <laughs> very much. And me. stay safe. And up next, a Wisconsin lawmaker says the quiet part real loud as Republicans ramp up voter suppression efforts ahead of the next election. We're back after this. On The Readout, we talk a lot about Republicans and their attempts to suppress the vote. They've waved away those accusations by saying, no, 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 we're just making it easier to vote and harder to cheat. Well, now we know that really isn't true because a Republican member of Wisconsin's Bipartisan Elections Commission told us so. Commissioner Robert Spindell sent an email to fellow Republicans from the 4th Congressional District, a district that includes Milwaukee gleefully reporting how they successfully suppressed the black and brown vote in that city. Here's what Spindell, who just so happens to be white, wrote. The 4th Congressional District Republican Party, working very closely with the Republican Party of Wisconsin and the Republican National Committee, can be especially proud of the city of Milwaukee. 80 percent dim vote, casting 37,000 less votes than cast in the 2018 election, with the major reduction happening in the overwhelming black and Hispanic areas. The braggadocio didn't end there. Mm -mm. He goes on to say this great and important decrease in Democrat votes in the city is part of a well thought out, multifaceted plan. What was the plan, you ask? Spindell laid that out, too, and included Fighting black radio negative commercials. And get this, a substantial and very effective Republican coordinated election integrity program resulting in lots of Republican paid election judges, among other things. We're learning about this because a group known as Urban Milwaukee got a copy of the email. Spindell told the Associated Press he wasn't bragging about voter suppression. Oh, no, no. He was detailing positive steps Republicans took to counter Democrats. That guy, Robert Spindell, also served as a fake Wisconsin elector for Donald Trump and is a defendant in three separate pending lawsuits related to his role as a fake elector. Because voter suppression, under the guise of election integrity, is the name of the game for the Republican Party. You could say it's doctrine, since they've been doing it since Dallas and Dynasty were hit shows on TV. In fact, in 1982, the Republican National Committee was ordered by a court to stop suppressing black votes. Lucky for them, that court order ended in 2018, effectively greenlighting them to reboot the suppression machine. And boy, are they leaning into that today in another leaked report, because I guess Republicans just love to lay out their plans to end democracy, Scooby-Doo villain style. The Washington Post is reporting that the RNC wants to ramp up election integrity activity, including state-level officers and aggressive training for election monitors. Here's the kicker. That report was prepared by RNC staffers, including one who also helped the Trump campaign convene alternate sets of fake electors. The Republican Party bringing you election integrity, one election fraudster at a time. And now... Shifting gears on the first day of Black History Month. Tucker Carlson, you know, the grown dude with the bangs. <laughs> <laughs> this dude keeps finding stupid 
to say. The race riots of 2020, of course, were never about George Floyd. Obviously, that's why there are no statues of him in American cities. This dude is so obsessed with black people, I'm going to start calling him sickle cell. Uh. I can't unsee that Tucker has bangs now. Uh, that's right. Deal Healy, who was guest hosting The Daily Show this week, is here. And he is straight ahead. Don't miss it. <laughs> On what could be the final National Black History Month before it gets canceled in red states by Ron DeSantis and every other 2024 Republican presidential hopeful, I figured that we could talk to my friend D.L. Hewley, author, comedian, and this week's host of The Daily Show. Uh, congrats on hosting The Daily Show, uh, D.L. Well, I'm excited you. about it. So, thank you. Well, thank you. you better watch it quick. It's almost, it's almost as short. <laughs> my tenure is almost as short as Black History Month. So you can get to it. <laughs> It is a short. It is the shortest month in the year. We noticed that. Um, so well, you pick. You uh, have the show this week. You have a comedy show during a really tough week. Let's just be honest. You know the Tyree Nichols right. situation has traumatized uh, black folk, especially black men. The black men in my life are all traumatized by it. Um, the funeral was today. What do you make of the whole thing? The fact that these were five black officers, but there is a white officer involved, not charged. Just the whole thing. I think, um, you know, I'd like to be optimistic. I think that um, I would like to hold out the hope to the fact that this is the way things are. But it, you can't help but notice the fact that everybody involved was black. It was the first time I've ever known anybody get charged that fast. But they happen to be five black officers and, and a black uh, a police chief. And also something happened that hadn't happened before in history where uh, somebody that was in the White House, an occupant of the White House, attended the funeral of a slain black child, a child that was slain at the hands of, of the police or a black person that was slain at the hands of the police. I think even our deaths are controversial to people. And so the, I'm seeing things I haven't seen before. I hope it's an indicator of th where things are going as opposed to the way things had always been. I mean, it would it be it would be ironic if the one thing that would catalyze change is a situation in which no one can say there's a racial aspect, even though there is. Again, there is a white officer who's not been charged, but he's but the one who yelled, I hope they beat his A. But more than that, why did so so many young men look how are five young black men? Very young men who been on, hadn't been on the force that long, that uh, left uh, that long without being supervised. Like, where was the supervisor? Where was the guy that came out and asked what the problem was or what the charge was? The fact that a system put men in place that could do this, wreak this kind of havoc unsupervised was a deliberate thing. And that's that's indicative of a system. It's, 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 it's not it's not by happenstance as though men happen to be in a community that had little to no voices. So I don't I don't I think that it's not as simple as saying the color of the skin. And what, what what Jason Whitlock, Kanye West and men like this prove is that you don't have to be black to serve white. Supremacy. You don't have to be white to serve white, supremacy, black, uh, serve white supremacy. There have always been some who, who, who are willing to do it. Let, let's talk a little bit about right, we've been talking a lot about history and the suppression of history uh, during the show today. You know, and to me, I think what the college board did in giving in to the political demands of the right who want a sanitized black history or no black history at all. I think it was cowardice. What do you make of this? What you can only describe it as capitulation. I think that it, it is more retro men uh, at one point enslaved people were denied the right to learn. You couldn't learn. And now we're denied. It's illegal for us to learn about enslaved people. So more than anything else, it is that uh, the reason people want to smother history is because they want to repeat it. And I don't think it's, it's this is by happenstance. It's not an accident. 
um, you know, it's funny because people get mad, like people got get mad that Little Mermaid was black. But if you thought that means slaves over about it, it's probably brown to be somebody black down there. Hello. Like, <laughs> I, Sebastian get his hair, the crab get his hair braided. It's a Nigerian lady with a boot <laughs> down there. I, I, I think that the more um, the, we, we have seen these things before, um, and obviously there's some nuances, but ultimately the idea who, who the, the thing that Republicans seems to be firmly interested in that they agree on is to control women's bodies and black people's histories. And uh, they have a that and, and they're, they can run on that and they've been doing pretty well uh, uh, governing on it. You know, what's ironic about the way that Republicans um, govern is that, as you said, they want complete control of women. They want control of black history, but they also still want to be lauded. They want to pretend like they want a black man to be Speaker of the House. He gets 20 votes and then he doesn't even get a gavel. So they really didn't want that guy to be Speaker of the House. Right. There's they still want to be treated as if the racism isn't there. Well, here's the thing. Um, racism in, in America. And what is new about this situation? Black people being slain uh, in the public view is not new. People being denied uh, black people the right to know themselves is not new. Uh, people wanting to pretend. If you if you look at people who who do horrible things and um, want still want to be lauded, you don't look. That you don't have to look much further than uh, than the the, the national anthem. Mm-hmm. You know. Scrape three stanzas off and it's supposed to be pristine. But uh, two or three stanzas down, they were talking about killing black people. We have this obsession. The problem with American history is Google, that we can't <laughs> keep lying to ourselves. And and uh, and so ultimately there, there'll be a reckoning and people will decide to either understand that this, uh, this is about um, not even just my rights. This is about the rights of women to do what they want and black people to know their history and people to be treated in a certain way. It's about freedom. We're going to, if we're going to categorize as anything. Amen. Uh, D.L. Hewley, thank you very much. We'll be watching you on The Daily Show all week. Thank you, my friend. Much appreciated. on you next time, Joy. I'm not paying again. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, fine. Fine. I'll pay. Uh, Okay, before we go, I am excited to announce a new series on the Readout blog. Black History Uncensored is a series in which Jahan Jones highlights black creators who have been targeted by GOP, by Republican bands. Up first is the late, great Bell Hooks. Scan the QR code that's on your screen right now to check it out on the Readout blog and stay tuned all month long for the history conservatives want hidden. And that is tonight's Readout. Hey everyone, it's MSNBC's Chris Hayes. For the first time since 1892, we have an election in which both candidates have presidential records. It's a chance to take a hard look at what Joe Biden and Donald Trump have actually done as president. On a special Why Is This Happening podcast series called With Pod 2024 The Stakes, I'm talking to experts about the two candidates' records on specific policy areas like immigration, taxes, climate, and more. So you know what's at stake come November. Search for Why Is This Happening and follow.